Hi, Crust Towners. Here we are getting into the um, action uh, for this carnival season. Uh, last week, we, we took kind of a poetic deep dive into the subject, but uh, this week I have tapped into a couple experts to talk about um, essentially what's going on, and that's Arthur Hardy. He's the expert in, in that, and um, he's warning us about routes changing, so that's a key thing that we're going to hear about in a conversation with him. And then I'm going to be talking with Dr. Mark Elaine Derry, and he is an epidemiologist, but with international, national, and regional experience. And um, he, um, he, he has a, a political awareness, so he goes into what he thinks some of the underlying issues with our health system are. He does touch on the question uh, related to Carnival of how, how much of a surge we're going to see, what kind of um, COVID uh, um, deaths are we going to drop into. And he doesn't think it's going to be too bad because so many of us have been inoculated and boosted and are just plain had COVID. So he's not uh, anticipating that to be um, as bad as it might have been in the past. Um, and then we kind of went on and we talked about um, communications in the health world. And I've had to learn a lot about that with um, very little knowledge going in. Um, and uh, through the help of people um, in each of the uh, couple institutions that I've been dealing with, um, I've, I've learned a lot. And um, so he, he talks about that also. And um, part of the issue is that it's, it's uh, he says, I'll keep issue is that it's been privatized it's corporate and uh, and then of course medicare regulations oh my goodness that's um that is really a, a core problem um, so i think you'll find this interesting stay tuned i have with us today um, the, the man, the Mardi Gras man who knows all, I mean, you can't, you can't do Mardi Gras without checking in with Arthur Hardy. You have to know, um, you know, what, what's new, what's happening, what to expect, what's changed, what are we concerned about? What, um, are we hopeful about? So that's kind of the, that's, that's, that's the, that's our interview in a nutshell, um, of what I need to know from you. So, um, let's rock and roll. Um, what uh, what's different this year? I mean, I know I, I assume that we've got uh, a lot of our crowd back that we lost over the pandemic, right? No doubt. If you look at uh, hotel occupancy levels, I think this will be back to the you know 2020 season really, which is great. Uh, the good news is these all of the crews may may get their parade rounds back, not definite yet, and particularly in the crew of toast, the crew of shut-ins and parades uptown. <clears throat> Pardon me. They pass about a dozen institutions where the people who can't get out to see a parade. So Toad brings a parade to them. Last year they weren't allowed to parade uptown. And this year, same thing until about a week ago. When the mayor announced, Pardon me, <clears throat> that um, if Toad could find other police departments who would come in and help, the city would pay for it. So they're working on that right now. There are 13 crews that started used to start at Jefferson Magazine that may get their routes back. So it could be a full return to pre-pandemic carnival. And that would be great news, even though it makes some of the maps in my magazine wrong. We'll update it on the website. I've never been so glad to have mistakes in the magazine if this happens. 
Right, right. So, so your advice to people um, who have already purchased your magazine or will um, that they have to sort of double check the roots. Check the website, yeah. And, and nobody will miss the parade of what we have. Just that the routes will start earlier uh, on the map. And it's, it's really important for these parades to get back. You know, if you're a rider in a parade and you're used to buying throws for five miles and now you have three, it's a whole different ballgame. You yeah. might even say, is it even, even worth the, the expense to ride if I can't get my full ride? So um, hopefully everything's going to be back to normal. And we're, we're predicting a really big, big market. We have more crews than ever, more membership than ever. Uh, the ladies' crew of Iris is now the biggest crew in history with 3,500 riding women. Wow. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. That is truly amazing. Speaking of Iris, uh, that reminds me, um, I, 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 I'm not uh, an aficionado of uh, Mardi Gras. So remind me the uh, women's crew that were having problems with their leadership. I guess it was last year or the year before. And is that all smoothed over now? About three years ago, the crew of Knicks. I don't know that it's smoothed over. They lost nearly 3,000 members, uh, people who were not happy. And what? Wow. But they're back to about 250 members, which is acceptable. And uh, hopefully that's that's ancient history now we'll move on. You know, Mardi Gras is the most, I think, diverse uh, celebration on the planet. I mean, there's something for everybody here. Talk about inclusion and inclusiveness. You know, if you can't find a spot to participate in Mardi Gras, you're not trying very hard. Huh? Yeah. Because uh, especially now that you're saying, how many more crews are there now than there were before? Well, this year we've only added two parades in the metro area, but the, the real story is, is not that, but it's how, how big the membership is. Uh, membership really exploded. And when you think about coming out of a pandemic, hurricane recovery, recession, you know, how can people find the money to do this? But each year we do, and this is what makes it special. You know, we, we know how to party, Gene. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I mean, you know, cost can be prohibitive um, in general, but to trade off having some real release and fun and experience of, of again, what makes New Orleans so um, special um, is, is really worth that commitment of, the, of that extra money that may put a hole in your pocket to some extent, but um, it really um, just enlivens your 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 experience, and and I think we all need some relief. I mean, you know, I, I had in my last email, I don't know if you saw it. I, I, I my headline was T G I C. Thank goodness it's carnival, you know, and that we have it because there's so much angst uh, going on out there for people who's. Lives have changed one way or another. I mean, the schools have changed, workplaces have changed. Um, a lot of places have closed and new places have opened. I mean, the pandemic turned out to be um, a game changer in many ways. It wasn't just about the health issue. And of course, we still have all the confusion over what's still um, in play. And the other person on my show today is going to be an epidemiologist who's gonna talk about you know, the prevailing um, uh, issue with the existing uh, pandemic. It's, it's not over. And that's something that does worry me about um, all of the events and, and the crush of people that we're going to be in one way or another, whether it's on the street or in a ball. Well, that's true. And that's one of the reasons the shortened parade routes didn't make sense 
the beginning. Because right, because it, it tightened it up. Yeah. People in a yeah. small place, but hopefully the worst of that is behind us. And uh, I think the most serious issue is crime. You know, let's face it, people are are afraid to be in parts of New Orleans at night. Will that carry over into the parade season? I don't think so. I think people still come out, but we have to really pray for a, a safe part of the season because that would really kill it if something bad happened um, in a parade. We've had things happen along parade routes that were not at all connected with, with the parade, which is coincidental to it. Um, but thankfully, we haven't had anybody shot on a float uh, intentionally or unintentionally. And, and we have to make sure that that doesn't happen. And uh, the police do the best they can, but you can't be everywhere, you know? So that's one of yeah, my- Yeah, and um, you know, I think one thing that we forget as we um, are concerned uh, rightfully and complain about the crime situation, uh, we act as if this is the only place it's happening and, and we call, keep calling ourselves the murder capital, but the truth is violent crime increased all over the country, in fact, all over the world. Um, and again, it was another byproduct of the pandemic. And I, I, who can explain exactly in what way, but I just think there's so much uncertainty and, um, and, and still a lack of educational preparation of our young people for careers. And, and that, if you don't have hope and expectations for a job and, and a career, all bets are off. And so you hit the streets to, to bring the, the dollars home that you feel you need to live on. And um, I, it doesn't excuse anything. It's, it's still um, terrible. And there's no doubt um, that we are high on the list. And it's a combination of having lost population and again, not really doing what we need to do in our schools. Um, that's that's my position on on uh, crime, and it's uh, you know you can't just deal with the courts and police. That's not the solution. No, it, uh, you know I'm involved in my high school. I'm a model Warren Easton High School, which is a charter school, doing quite well, 100% graduation for several years in a row. And after Katrina, the school almost closed, and, and thankfully didn't. And I'm on the board of directors. So anyhow, uh, Sandra Bullock adopted our school, and has been. Cheerleader, you know, she told me education is the answer to prejudice, crime, and poverty. I mean, who didn't know that, but you hear her, her say it, and and that's why it's so important that we, we do a better job of educating all of the youth of the city. And uh, I'm proud of how well our school is doing. But you want you want every school to be a good school, and yeah. uh, we're headed in the right direction. You know, and and interestingly enough, it is in part. Schools' participation in Mardi Gras through the marching bands, for one, the dancing groups, for another, and um, and, and I think just as the spirit of the season again, um, that uh, really takes kids into a better place, um, uh, at least for a period of the year, and and um, I think a. a uh, triggers a kind of camaraderie and um, relationships between people that are more positive because obviously a lot of the crime, uh, maybe not the carjackings, which are the scariest of all the crimes really, that you can get in your car and get out on the street and just never know that you might be hit. But um, the disputes between young people that are resolved with guns is so sad. And um, I think that is what is, is pervasive throughout the culture of our country and not just New Orleans. 
but um, education. Also, um, Arthur, I hope that in your school, there is some kind of teaching in the area of the creative industries, because that is a huge growth industry worldwide. And here we are, the poster child, really, for a culture. And uh, we're, we're still not investing and supporting um, that industry sector the way we should be. And, and making sure that kids understand the opportunities in those fields. I always say not everybody can be Beyonce, but they sure can be part of her whole crew uh, of, of work uh, people. There's so many jobs in the creative industry other than being out front on the stage. And um, I don't think we're training our um, youth for ma maximizing their, their basic cultural um, legacy that they all have here. So right, uh, Colon Shorty for Andrews, Andrews is very involved in our school. And uh, I produced a little piece a few years ago, it actually won a New Orleans Press Club Award on Warren Easton's musical legacy, the amount of people that have graduated from there or attended Warren Easton and gone on to great things like Trombone Shorty, like Nicholas Cajun, Louis Primo went to Warren Easton, was Pete Fountain, there's quite a few people and a lot of music educators, producers, performers, and uh, we're certainly not the only school that's turned out with a ton of people, but quite a rich a rich heritage, and uh, our band uh, performed in about 10 parades, I think. So, you know, when you think about it, more, more people in public see you in one Mardi Gras parade than they ever would a concert or even a football game. So it's a great PR piece, a recruiting tool, if you will, for for your school. Um, and the kids enjoy it. You know, they'll complain a bit. It's, it's, it's hard. It's hard work. They train for this like um, that. That training is, uh, and that training has an impact on um, the rest of their education. It's been proven that people who work in art and music and other creative pursuits, that affects their performance in, in um, all of the other uh, educational uh, training they're getting. No doubt, you know, in a, in a former life, I was a band director at Brother Martin High School for 16 years and got to see it from that side. And you're right, you know, music just does so much developmentally for, for the brain. And, and social, you know, the interaction, the teamwork. Um, you can be a soloist, but you also have to be part of a group. A lot of life's lessons are learned in the, in the band. Well, let's get back on this year's Mardi Gras. So what is going to be different other than larger crews and bigger parades, but um, um, what are the new costumes, throws, themes? Um, what can we expect? What's 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 what what will our revel revelry be based on this year? You know, it's and I'm supposed to be the guy who knows everything, but I haven't seen anything this year that really excites me. Or the, the news is that we're going to return to normal. That's the news. Crews haven't spent a lot of time inventing new things because they're just putting so much effort into having full parades, full crowds, hotel occupancy. Biggest thing would be full parade bouts. So I don't think you're going to see the story of the year is this, it's, you know, the story is we, we should be back 100%. And that's enough of the story. And we'll have a year to get ready for the next time and maybe have some new innovative throws or ideas. But uh, a normal Mardi Gras is, is plenty enough. <laughs> no, that, that, that's true. That's, that's a major achievement. And um, I, I stopped off at um, Noni, uh, I forget what it's called exactly, the brewery where they had their... Um, the uh, the um, king cake hub because uh, yeah. I was trying to get I have a, a a daughter who makes something called Billy Beads with her husband, 
And they're basically Fimo-based jewelry with um, Swarovski jewels in them. And they look like, um, you know, uh, fancy Russian jewelry, but they're they're inexpensive relatively. And I said, you've got to do a king cake. Nobody's done a, a, a real king cake pin or medallion. And so it was kind of late that I had the idea. So I'm going to get one, but we're not going to be in trade this year. But next year, I hope that we'll be able to be out in the marketplace with that. And, and that's the kind of thing that you, you like to see, something that expresses some artistic um, uh, ideas and uh, it enables people who are artists to make a living and be a part of a, a creative economy. You know, one of the neat things about Mardigan that, that visitors have a hard time understanding that it's not corporate sponsored. You come up with a great idea, you don't have to go to the NFL Commission or the, you know, the Olympic Committee or Disney and get from it. You, it's it's capitalism and entrepreneurism at its best. You have a good idea, do it. Do you it. Belong to everybody, and yeah. people will become wealthy by coming up with an idea for a new throw or you know a new song or something. So. Uh, I, I love that, you know, that it's, it belongs to all of us. You know, and although you're saying that you, you don't know about anything new, I, I'll bet there'll be some new things out there that we just don't know about because literally communications is a, is a time-consuming affair. And um, if, you're, if you're busy, as you said, getting your, your parade out on a route, and, um, and, and and that's what you have to focus on. You don't have time to communicate about what you got, but I'll bet you anything, there'll be some new shoe coming from Muses or um, some new poster from Rex or um, some new coconut from Zulu. I mean, you know, there'll be there'll be new stuff out there. I'm sure there will, and we'll try to cover it. And, you know, the beauty of having a website is you can update things it's instantaneous, you know, we. We had a couple of minor mistakes in the magazine and then some updates with the new playground. Once it's printed, you know, it's forever. But you have the ability now to correct things. And that's a real a gift for people in the, in the print industry. Well, uh, I'm certainly looking forward to it. I mean, usually I don't get the fever until the last minute. And I'm close enough to it. Um, we, the past couple of years, because of the um, COVID, um, my husband and I basically sat on our porch, which faces Esplanade Avenue and watched the revelers um, coming from wherever in the mid city and Treme area and headed towards the French Quarter. And that's our Mardi Gras. And we sit there in our sort of regalia and pretend that we're, um, you know, a, a royalty on, on our, on our um, thrones, on our porch. You know, we, we, we keep a record of the passing crowd on Esplanade. That's terrific, yeah. Everybody has a different way of celebrating Mardi Gras, right? They're either on a truck floats or, floats or they're in a little marching group or, you know, they're in a, on a monstrous float in, in um, one of the bigger parades or they, or they do exactly what we do, sit on their porch and, and uh, co uh, communicate with folks that are passing by. It's the greatest spectator sport on earth because at a parade, you don't become a spectator for long. You become a participant, you, you know, you dive in. And I still do. You know, I thought at some point I'd get tired of all this foolishness, but not really. <laughs> I still enjoy getting out there in the street. And, you know, it's just, just a fun time. You wish you could keep it going forever. I mean, every place else after Christmas and New Year's, it's over. 
For us, those are warm-up acts, you know. <laughs> That's one of the things that I try to explain to friends. I mean, I'm originally from... Uh, I've been taking lately to a joke that's probably getting a little tired, but when people ask me where I'm from, I always say the South, and then I pause and say Bronx, because <laughs> that's where I was raised, South Bronx. But um, I mean, January is, oh my God, you just want to get out of there because the, if, you, if you travel on the subways, which a lot of people do, did it is cold and, and, and you know, it's whipping around your legs and it's really grim to be down there in, in, the, in the subway lines. And uh, out on the street, you know, snow might be pretty for about uh, an hour and then it's slush. And so no, when, when January 6th rolls around and I am in carnival territory in New Orleans, I'm a happy girl. And that's one of the key reasons I have to say that after I came here, I never went back. I did go back to do some work for a few years, but I still was commuting and I never, uh, gave up my home in New Orleans, and uh, and and you know you hear so many people talk about how they'll come here for a visit, and uh, whether it's Mardi Gras or not, if it's Jazz Fest or it's just one of our many festivals. I mean, the festivals just are endless, right? Uh, and and they just they don't want to leave. And some people just literally send for their clothes. How many times have you heard that story? Uh, many stories of people who met here and got married, you know, at Mardi Gras. Right. Yes. We do this better than anybody else in the world, and just hoping for a safe Mardi Gras this year. That's, that's I was just about to say, I sure hope we don't have any uh, nasty incidents. I really do. And um, I wish the kids, uh, you know, we, we obviously more and more people are talking about how to do prevention and intervention rather than have to punish, because uh, punishment doesn't really work. And by that time, a lot too many people are lost. Um, to the um, to the world that they could be a part of, but fell out of because they didn't get the tools that they needed to um, to pursue those careers. So, yeah, I'm hoping for um, more. That's another thing. I mean, I think too many of our young people. I hope that our young people are following in the traditions of their elders, whether it's uh, people who are in social aid and pleasure clubs and Mardi, and Mardi Gras Indian crews, or just. Uh, some, again, small marching group that marches down Royal Street from, from Marigny into uh, uh, Canal Street. I always position myself at Canal and Royal because I get the benefit of Zulu, Rex, and St. Anne and all the other little parades that come up Royal Street. Uh, this year, Zulu will not be going to Canal Street, so we're missing this year. They're turning uh -oh. up. We'll see Rex. What are they going to do? Uh, 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 head over to Ramparts and, and Galvez or something like that? That's the best spot, yeah. Now, that's as of this moment. That route could change back to Canal Street. We don't, we don't know, but as of okay. now, they have no plan to Canal Street. All cool. right, but they are marching, and that's what counts. Yeah, <laughs> Arthur, I will check back with you afterwards, and you'll give me your um, post uh, what, what do they call the, the sessions after the uh, Saints games the, um, uh, on television? We call it a post-mortem, but it's really not after death, it's after joy. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not sure what we would call it, but uh, to get your um, you know, reflections 
on uh, uh, hopefully a really um, exciting and happy and wonderful Mardi Gras. All right, well, you enjoy it and um, stay in touch. Let me know anything that's going on that you know we should try to catch up with. One of my favorites, by the way, and I will try to make that, um, even though it's kind of hard for me right now with what's going on with my husband, but teat rex. I love teat rex because I love those little floats. And I, I, I bought a couple of them, not, I, I don't make it every year, but um, you know, they're a great uh, gift for people who are big Mardi Gras fans, um, or they're just wonderful things to, you know, uh, for um, adding to your decor. I don't need any additions to my decor. I got a lot of artwork in my home, but um, that's always what I enjoy. What? Happy Mardi Gras. Happy Mardi Gras. Yay, enjoy. Look forward to it all. All right. Thank you so much, Arthur, for giving us an idea of what to expect. And we will check in with you later. I am... Um, really interested in having a conversation with you on, on multiple levels. So I hope that um, we can uh, cover the topics I wanna cover. So I think what spurred uh, uh, the connecting of, of us was um, my last newsletter where I talk about the post-pandemic pandemic. By that, I'm not really talking necessarily about the COVID itself, but about, um, all of the um, psychological, sociological, business, the, uh, the impact of a, a virus uh, that is so extensive in its impact with people, with humans, that it impacts our entire um, uh, geographic um, regions that have a high rate of the uh, disease. And unfortunately, we did have, um, a sort of a pandemic within a pandemic of disinformation that really hurt our ability to deal with this pandemic. So you have so many people who were interpreting the idea of vaccination as some kind of government interference with their lives. So people who are resistant to um, government uh, engagement um, it took the idea of the vaccine as something that was intrusive rather than protective of their lives. And that was, that was a very unfortunate, I guess it's not atypical. I really don't know in the past whether there has been that kind of political resistance to a virus. Let's start there. Is that something that is common? Um, yeah, it, it's... <clears throat> It depends on, you know, I, I, I saw it when I was uh, in Sierra Leone, when I was working with the WHO for the uh, Ebola outbreak. And initially, so you have a, uh, a largely about 80% of the population in Sierra Leone are illiterate. So if you're illiterate, you're going to be prone to kind of match what I refer to as magical thinking, right? You, you don't truly understand how the world works um, and you are more prone to probably uh, to be religious um, and believe in kind of religious text and this sort of stuff. And usually you get a lot of, well, God will protect me or I believe in God. And, you know, and it's, it's a lot of 
kind of a uh, it's what I re- again I refer to it as magical thinking. Uh, not that I, I'm denigrating religion at all, but what I am stating is that when you have a largely illiterate population, you're not going to understand science. And so the idea of a virus circulating uh, through uh, West Africa and killing the initial the first part of it was it was quite a uh, and it still is quite a, um, a virulent virus. In other words, it's really, you know, it, yeah. unless you get treatment right away, the mortality rates are really quite high. And so it took a long time for people to really like when I first got to Sierra Leone, there was billboards everywhere that says Ebola is real. Like they just thought it was a big scam or a fake or what have you. And so I think that when you're looking at populations of people who don't put education or don't put science at the forefront, I think it's easy to kind of misconstrue uh, viral pandemics. I think we've seen it in the past and certainly we saw it with the uh, COVID outbreak uh, as well. These are not individuals that um, are scientifically literate. Um, These are people that are more prone to what I refer to again as magical thinking, conspiratorial thinking. And I just wanna say that um, that it's not that necessarily it's people who are opposed to government intrusion because they'll use government to intrude onto other people's beliefs. Like, for example, they will say, uh, my body, my choice, except if it comes to your uterus, then I'm in charge of your uterus. The same people who did not understand or recognize the hypocrisy and don't tell me to wear a mask, it's my body, are also the very same people who are going to tell women what to do with their uteruses. So when it's government that's intruding upon them, no. But when it's government that intrudes upon others in a way that they deem as appropriate, then yes, you know, I look at January 6th, the day that I got one of my vaccinations. And as I was experiencing some of the, um, some of the, um, some of the side effects of the vaccination, because I got it very early in the morning on TV, um, the we started the, the January 6th started to unfold on television, right? The January 6th, 2021, the what we refer to as January 6th, the insurrection. And again, you know, you had people who were easily using government uh, for their, they were going to tear down a government they didn't like so that they could uh, establish a government that they did like. And it's one in which uh, does intrude on other people's uh, uh, rights and beliefs and takes away the equity, what little equity this this society has been able to, to generate over the past 50 or 60 years. Um, it's being torn down uh, in the name of what liberty freedom what have you but yeah. the the one of the probably the most startling statistics that came from the pandemic that clearly shows the point that you're making is that in um in cities and in in uh, uh communities that vote red the mortality rate the there is lower vaccination rates than communities uh, or locales that voted blue for the presidential so by voting red and blue i'm talking about the presidential sure. um, uh, election so the 2020 yeah. so and if you lived in a community that voted red you were yeah. more likely to not be vaccinated and more likely to have died from covid than communities that vote blue and mm-hmm. so that disinformation runs very very deep 
but disinformation when it comes to uh, the conservative mindset is part and parcel of the conservative mindset because having, you know, this morning I was uh, asked to partake in some uh, comprehensive sexuality education, uh, um, not legislation, but uh, communications discussions. And I, I've actually stopped doing it. I mean, I have spent the early part of my career fighting for comprehensive sex ed as an HIV physician, as an infectious diseases physician, um, and as a published author on an article, an original article with my wife, where we link uh, abstinence-only sexuality education to HIV in the South. We link it definitively, link the two together, um, I re realize that that <clears throat> our lawmakers, uh, both here in Louisiana, in the South, and just in general, that that having the best information out there for people to make the best choices for them does not maintain the status quo. That actually threatens the status quo. What maintains the status quo is disinformation. What maintains the status quo is uh, conspiracy thinking um, and this sort of stuff. We have you know, uh, a major cable channel that peddles in nothing but disinformation because that maintains the status quo. Before we go any further, I realized that I, I was so curious about uh, hearing from you that I did not give you a proper introduction. So I just want to back up and say we are talking with um, Dr. Mark Elaine Derry, and um, he is an epidemiologist and, and therefore an expert in the transmission of disease, for one, and, and he has expertise in more than one um, field. So I have a... Um, a mindset now that is has been affected by experiences that I've had since September with the medical um, uh, institutions, the, the medical arena, as a result of a very bad uh, freak accident that my husband had in a car. What I've learned from the experience at both the nursing home and at a very good um, hospital unit is that there's a problem with communicating with people about health, medicine, medical care. They're not telling us things that we need to know when you walk in the door and you're put in a bed, there are, there are certain things that you should understand from Jump Street as to how things work. And they simply do not tell you that. Surely because of your international, national and local experience, you've dealt with these things too. So. Help me understand what's going on. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, what's you, what's wrong with our medical system, and what's wrong with well, our medical system not is fundamentally attacking what needs to be attacked. Right. Well, the medical system is fundamentally broken. It's corrupt and morally bankrupt. It is corrupt and morally bankrupt because largely the focus is on the disease uh, of individuals, largely because we allow. Uh, medicine to be uh, privatized and 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 profited upon. So the dis-ease that we experience is uh, profited upon by uh, capitalists. So when you look at other healthcare systems around the world, um, basically uh, in countries that have a, a Medicare for all model or a so-called socialized system of medicine or what have you, what you see is that uh, it takes, it costs about $5,000 per person per year 
to provide adequate coverage for those individuals. And that's usually paid through, through out of taxes. You, there's no insurance companies, there's no bills and, and this sort of stuff. You, you, you pay your taxes that comes directly out of your paychecks. And that goes directly into, you know, let's use the UK model into the NHS, for example, but it's the same model in France, all throughout Europe and through uh, some parts of, of, of Asia as well. When you look at the costs of medicine for Americans, we pay $10,000 per person per year. And does that mean that we get twice the better medical coverage than the rest of the world? No, that extra $5,000 that we pay for goes directly into profits. So we have a system that is at its core morally bankrupt. As a physician who practices medicine in that in, in, in this system, it's exceedingly difficult for me to continue to practice medicine, especially in the world that I live in, which is exclusively the Medicaid system. There used to be a hospital here called Charity Hospital, and there used to be a system of hospitals here called the Charity Systems. I've been practicing within that system ever since I've been in New Orleans, almost 20 years now. And that is where I live. That's the, that's the medicine that I enjoy practicing. And, uh, but that's system, even pre John Bell Edwards, who was very generous and, and, and expanded Medicaid significantly, which brought a significant uh, uh, portion of my patients who were previously uninsured, at least have some insurance. But I do feel moving forward, we are going to lose that coverage, uh, especially if we have a, um, we'll never see a Democrat you know, and calling John Bell Edwards a, a, a Democrat is is tough, given his anti-abortion and pro-gun stances. But that being said, uh, he did expand Medicaid, as he said he would. And I think that he managed in his eight years to kind of keep the state fairly stable. Uh, I, I do believe that our next governors that we will see in the state are going to try to out Abbott Abbott. On, uh, on the West, they're going to try to out DeSantis, DeSantis uh, over there on, on our Eastern uh, um, uh, borders there in Florida and what have you. And so I fear for what's going to happen with the medical system as we move forward. But the fundamental issue here is that the system is fundamentally broken. And until we get into a system of healthcare that does not profit on the dis-ease of individuals, we will continue to have lots of stories like yours. Your stories are one of many, many, many stories that exist because of a system that's patchwork and it's purposely meant to be complicated. It's purposely meant to be difficult to stand up against. And again, just like anything else, and I have a feeling I'll be saying this a lot in this, this conversation, it just maintains the status quo. And the status quo is such that the executives and administrators of hospitals and healthcare systems and insurance companies make millions of dollars of profit based on the system, that money goes directly into their pockets. It does not get regenerated back into the system, but you would expect to see a, a moral, a system based on ethics and morality. Our system is morally bankrupt. And so therefore the billions of dollars that gets generated from 330 million people in this country get put into people's pockets directly. And I think that's a crime. So you know what I don't understand is we, we've had in the past, um, uh, I, I, I wanna say at least uh, half a dozen to a, a years to a decade of protest over women's rights, over uh, Black Lives Matter, over um, you know, essentially um, 
the crimes of um, uh, equity, of lack of equity uh, for people. Um, and for some reason, this healthcare um, issue is, is ne has never really rallied the kind of energy that protest takes needs in order to have a uh, have an impact. So it's one thing to say, oh my God, our medical system really is terrible and is disadvantageous. And as you just said, all your words on overcomplicated, set up to benefit the institutions. Although to listen to them, they make it sound like, oh my God, if they kept somebody in another week and they had to pay for that care because Medicare won't pay for it, that's just a crime, you know, against um, the, you know, the, the institution, they make that sound like, oh, wow, that's, that's really, that, that's not permissible. They, they can't uh, pay for somebody's uh, care for a week because, um, you know, the feds won't uh, acknowledge uh, the basis of keeping the person in longer. I mean, uh, again, uh, and, and that the circumstances to which they are being returned um, uh, with their medical condition is not a factor at all. It's just mind boggling. So why is it that health, which is such a fundamental issue for everybody, and so many of us go through these experiences, as you said, I, I know that I'm not the only one, otherwise I wouldn't be um, uh, harassing you on a radio show, you know, to for people to hear. Um, I would just be mumbling and complaining, but um, I, I can't help but feel that um, we're, there's somehow there's a missing beat here in terms of our society understanding how critical this is and, and, and how much we need to put more energy into um, literally just protesting how all this works. You know, I, I don't think protests, protests don't work anymore. I, I think that, you know, you're seeing laws around the country that are actually uh, making protests illegal. Um, and once you start the spigot of money being generated, it's very difficult in this country to, to, to turn that spigot off. There, there, you know, for a short period of time, I was out there um, supporting Bernie Sanders and his Medicare for All platform. <clears throat> and I've since uh, realized just my just tremendous naivete. We, this country will never, will never have a Medicare for All platform. Uh, at least it, it, the way that this country is currently being run right now. This country is actually in the society's shifting toward a theocratic fascism uh, or, or a very strong authoritarian, uh, theocratic authoritarianism. And I'm not afraid to use the word fascist either because I do believe that that's what we're seeing right now. We have now taken women's rights away from their uteruses. I don't know what better word to use at that point than the word fascist. Um, and as we live in this society of an authoritarian kind of fascistic society, there's no way that they're going to want to try to provide health care for all. We can be out there protesting in the streets until our, our faces are blue. They will still continue to make money off of the disease of individuals, and they will not do anything that's going to provide the best care for the citizens. And that's largely because this country just doesn't care about its workers. The country, the business of America is business. And <clears throat> the way that I see it is that, you know, you look at our 
our uh, our uh, minimum wage. It hasn't budged. It's seven twenty five. No, nobody would even you know the idea of living of of expecting people to live on a, on that salary, requiring people to work three jobs. I remember when George uh, W. Bush was president, he was doing a town hall and some woman was talking and she mentioned that she works three jobs and he kind of interrupted her. And he's like, look at this uniquely American, a woman working three jobs. This is a woman who was advanced in age. And I was horrified. I mean, that's not something to be proud of. That's something to be horrified about that. That is more reflective of how difficult our society is at 725. And when you hear about these low wage workers and the difficulties they have in that it forces them, they, they only get their shifts the day before, they're unable to plan. Uh, there's no sick days. Uh, certainly during COVID, we saw that people were still being uh, forced to come to work despite being sick and potentially transmitting virus to other people. Uh, th th this country does not care for the workers, the people like you and I, right? The, the, those are the workers, people who are, unless you're hitting a button on a computer and you're paying 15% taxes because your investments call for such, you know, 15% tax rates where we pay 30 to 40%, those are the elites, we're the workers. And this country was built by elites, for elites. And when we start to see that people are being granted more and more rights and more and more leadership, just like what we saw in the Jim Crow South, as, as we saw more and more African-American people starting to take office after the Civil War and starting to gain uh, significantly more power in society, you saw that was torn down. You saw what happened in Tulsa with the so-called Black Street, uh, the Black Wall Street uh, riots that they just decimated a complete population of individuals there. We saw the institution of Jim Crow era laws that completely removed black individuals and black Americans from the power they were accumulating here in the South and brought those racial relationships back hundreds of years. And we're still feeling the effects of those now. So when I say that our country just isn't into us, those are the sorts of things that I'm saying. Yeah, I, and, and I recognize everything you've just said and I uh, um, agree with the reality of it, however, um, I have a, a simple-minded uh, philosophy uh, that um, the pendulum swings and ultimately um, uh, a, a, the, the line of history is not a straight line and it doesn't go in, uh, incessantly up or incessantly down, it changes. That's something that as a, something of a history student I've observed. And I also believe that um, things are changing right now as we speak in this past election, a lot of elections uh, were lost um, uh, to people who had these hardcore viewpoints because of the younger people coming up who came out to vote. And I do believe that the younger generation has a very different one, the younger, let's say the Z generation, I don't know which, you know, generation you want to focus on, but younger people um, are, have a different mindset about this. Will they be able, as time goes on, to change things? Um, th that's to be determined. I, I was a young person in the 60s, and, you know, we were in the middle of a big upset against the system that was in place in the 60s, you know, coming out of the 50s, the sort of 
anti-communist era when that's all that mattered. You were either for or anti-communism. Uh, and and uh, so if you wanted to do anything for people, you were accused of being a communist and that was the end of the story. But um, then things changed to an extent. And so I think it'll take too long and I think there's too many people who are in fact suffering from this lack of equity. And um, however, uh, I'm not an optimist at heart. I always say I'm, I'm an existentialist. So my existentialism comes out as a, again, a very simple minded thing that um, I cannot predict the future because I have no idea what controls the future, but I can try to make a difference. So it's always critical to not accept circumstances that are unacceptable. So, I mean, I, I, I do believe that a lot of people voted against the, um, uh, the government's ability to control a woman's uterus. I really uh, think that um, we saw a, a shift in the population. And so I think that a shift in how our medical system works is doable. It, it's just gonna take a lot more focus and energy in that direction than is happening. Tell me I'm wrong. I mean, <laughs> I, you, you know, I am the optimist. My wife accuses me of wearing rose colored glasses all the time. But what we're seeing right now, um, let's just say as we're recording this today on January 11th, there's nurses, very brave nurses right now that are I'm striking, trying. that are striking in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, and they're not striking necessarily for more money. Of course, you know, they're going to want to get paid more. Of course, what they're actually striking for is for better conditions. And I, the conditions that they're asking for is not necessarily they want the hospital to, to look better or be cleaner or what have you. The better conditions is that the typically in, 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 in elite medical centers or centers around the world um, that uh, purport to be elite uh, or to, that offer excellent health care, usually you find uh, nursing ratios in, in intensive care units of one to one or one to two. And on the general medical floors, you'll find them to be about one to four. These nurses have ratios of one to 20. So one nurse taking care of 20 patients. That is just physically impossible for nurses to do all the assessments and to do all the things that they need to do. That's just unmanageable uh, to do that. And then not only that, but then you create a, a, a system or a, a, certainly an environment where people feel defeated and they're not going to want to come to work and they don't go to work. Nurses are having to do double shifts or what have you. And all they're asking for is for better work environment. Now, why is it that they are at, at ratios of one to 20? That's because they're getting rid of nursing. Why the nurses at the hospital? Well, that's a cost. And when you look at the differential in salaries between the executives in these positions who make upwards of a million dollars a piece, uh, and they've been giving themselves raises. These two particular hospitals, Montefiore and um, and I don't remember the name of the second hospital. I didn't think I was going to be talking about it. Lennox or I can't remember the name of the second hospital. But um, but when you look at the rates of raises they've been giving themselves versus what they've been doing with nursing staff. Bottom line, I'm, I'm interested in you thinking about this, and we'll talk again about it another time and, and, and see if there's been any kind of movement. And I'm gonna do what I can to make 
a bigger issue of this through my small, you know, I have a radio show and a newsletter and I'm going to, um, I'm going to try to do what I can to, to heighten awareness, but that's not going to be enough. And then let's talk now, go back to the question of um, there, the tourism people are celebrating the notion that we're going to be back to normal in terms of crowd size and the, um, parades apparently have gained membership left and right. And there's going to be a ton of people on these floats and more floats than ever. And um, I, I'm, I'm very concerned that we're going to see a surge. And, 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 and surely you've thought about this and are concerned about it as well. Sure. You know, I am, <clears throat> we are in a better position with COVID than we've been for, for the last couple of years largely due to the fact that you have a large portion of people who've had COVID and have developed some immunity to it just from just from being naturally infected or who have gotten and kept up with their vaccination schedules as well. Um, you also add to that number of viruses and over time the viruses become less virulent, thankfully, uh, as well. So <clears throat> Are we going to see more COVID? Yes. Is it going to be hard to measure? Yes, because we've stopped measuring daily uh, uh, tallies of COVID like we used to do. We now get it weekly as per the CDC, uh, and uh, a majority of it is either done through, uh, through, um, through testing that hospitals report on. Uh, because everybody now just takes home tests, they don't do the testing at public sites anymore. Those home testing are not reported. So we're having to use other things like wastewater surveillance um, uh, to determine uh, where uh, COVID is and if there's an increase in spikes in COVID. Uh, and those are all very helpful uh, as well, but that information is not as useful as the day-to-day -day information that we used to have. So will we see upticks? Yes. Are we seeing, you know, I'm an infectious diseases physician. I, I've worked, you know, uh, pretty much uh, every day for the past three and a half months at one of our large regional medical centers. I've seen very little in the form of COVID. I'm the only infectious disease doctor there. Um, if COVID was there and somebody was sick, I'd be called. We've seen very little of it, not like what we saw when we uh, had the Delta virus, um, and uh, which was the summer of uh, 2021. That was some of the worst COVID I've ever seen in my life. It was, it's frightening. I still get a little PTSD when I think back on it because largely that was right around the time of uh, Hurricane Ida as well and the stress that went along with Ida. In fact, we refer to it as Covida. Um, and that was what it was, <clears throat> that's what that experience was like. So I think that the virus is becoming more endemic. I think we're going to see probably, yes, there's going to be an uptick in cases. And I think the virus is here to stay. I think, um, you know, 30% of common colds were already coronavirus anyway. So this is just another strain. And as it circulates more and more, it'll become very likely to become less virulent, uh, meaning that uh, people aren't going to have the same symptoms. Excuse me, majority of people. There are going to be people who are immunosuppressed or who their health may be right on the edge. And it's just something like a COVID infection that could push people over the edge. But it could be that way with influenza or with a common cold or with anything else. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is COVID. So I, I, I think that um, we've asked the public 
to uh, to sacrifice. I think for the most part they have. I think that it was different parts of the country did it better and other parts of the country did it worse. And in this state, you had Baton Rouge in, in New Orleans who did it well, and the rest of the state uh, just did it very, very poorly. They pushed up against any of those recommendations uh, for reasons largely doing, uh, uh, going back to what we were talking about, about disinformation. Yeah. And yeah. certainly we have thoughts about that. But I, I think that we are going to see probably an uptick in cases. You're going to expect to see that when you have uh, large groups of people who get together. But I thought the the virus that we used to refer to as monkeypox, we now refer to as mpox. Now it's now referred to as mpox. The I thought that the um, that the large uh, celebration that was going to happen over Labor Day um, uh, that takes place uh, was it decadence. That I thought decadence was going to be a large super spreading event for MPOX ended up not being the case, largely due to the massive vaccination campaign that had occurred as a result of, of the of the MPOX virus circulating mostly amongst uh, men who have sex with men. And so decadence did not end up being a super spreading event. So what's going to happen with Mardi Gras? It'll certainly be interesting. I think that we probably will circulate virus. It's probably not going to be kind of what we saw in 2020, which was about two to three weeks after Mardi Gras. We started to see a massive uptick in cases, and we heard of people dying in the hospitals um, and this sort of stuff. I think that, you know, again, you add a combination of people being partially uh, immunized uh, uh, largely due to either natural infection or vaccine or both induced immunity. I think that we're not going to see the cases that we saw before when we weren't immune at all to the virus at one time. But we're still going to have the more vulnerable people, the older yes, people, 100%, the immunosuppressant, suppressed people um, at risk. And, and uh, I'm, I'm in that age group, so I, I do um, think about it, worry about it. But um, uh, doctor, you have been so um, informative and um, uh, I, I'm really impressed with um, your uh, political consciousness um, uh, as well as your medical expertise. And I look forward to uh, future conversations with you. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for your time and your commitment.